Well, good morning, Cornerstone. It's a blessing and a privilege to worship the Lord together with you and uh, to thank the, the praise and worship team and just your heart to direct our focus, uh, not to ourselves, but to Christ and to his work. Um, it is a, it's always a pleasure to be with you. Um, as James mentioned, uh, this is a friendship that God, by God's grace, has spawned so much encouragement to my own heart. And as a, a young church planner, we look to you often uh, as a church for the modeling and for the example as you go before us. And you're about four or five years older than us, and so we can kind of follow and trace your steps. And uh, it's been, I think, a real joy as James and I have had the opportunity to, to meet often throughout the years, especially over this past year, as God, by his grace, has enabled our hearts to discover the gospel. And as God has been working in his heart, God has been doing the same thing in our heart. And I remember a couple meetings ago when we got together and we just shared our hearts. It was one of the sweetest moments of of, of fellowship that I've ever experienced um, in my life because it was centered on Christ and his gospel. And uh, this morning he asked me just to share my heart regarding the gospel. And so it is a real privilege to do this. I also come with with far more trepidation than I had before because this truth has really rocked my world. And so I want to be careful and make sure that the things that that I share with you that I believe are from God's word would be true and would be faithful to the person and work of Christ because I believe this truth will radically change your view of God your view of family, your view of the world, your view of everything can be radically transformed by this truth centered on the person and work of Christ. And so let me just pray one more time and ask the Lord to, to help us this morning. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, that our rest is not in ourselves, it's not in the changing and fleeting circumstances of life. Father, that our rest is in you, the faithful one. Thank you, Lord, that on that day when we stand before you, holy, awesome, mighty, sovereign God, who is just and righteous to punish sinners, Father, that we will offer nothing before you, but God, we will simply claim the righteousness of Christ alone is the only reason why we would ever be able to stand and not be consumed by your wrath. And so, Father, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for that hope that he has given to us for that day when we will all appear before your throne. And I pray, Father, that all of us in this room, that we would not have a righteousness of our own derived from the law, derived from good works, But Lord, that we would have the righteousness which comes from faith, the righteousness of Christ alone. And Father, we would pray this morning that our hearts, God, would feel the weight and the gravity of the preciousness of Christ in his death, of his grace and of his love, of his mercy. And Father, as we contemplate what the gospel really is, that this truth would melt away all pride, all self-righteousness, all self-reliance, and melt our hearts and cause us to come humbly before you. And Lord, the expression of our worship, Lord, may it be love for Jesus. May we love him. 
for who he is and for all that he has done in his cross work for us. We thank you and we bless you for this precious truth that you have revealed to us by grace. And I pray, Lord, that you would guard my mouth and that you'd protect this flock from any error, any exaggeration of truth, any exaggeration of application. May it be biblical and biblically balanced, we pray in your name. Amen. I want to start this morning's message by simply sharing my own journey towards gospel-centeredness. And the reason why I want to do this is because there might be some of you here who can identify readily with the first 22 years of my Christian life. If you were to ask me within those first 22 years this question, what role does the gospel play in your life? My answer would have been very clear and very resolute. It would have been the gospel plays the key role in evangelism because the gospel is the necessary truth for sinners to be saved. And that would be the limitations of the gospel in my understanding of the gospel. That is true. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation, as Paul said in Romans 1.16. But that's not all it is. It's not simply the truth that we pass along in our evangelism. For the longest time in my Christian life, I struggled with one truth the most. By far, this was the stumbling block in my faith. This is what kept me from truly trusting in God. And it was this, it was His grace. I could not get my head around the grace of God. Especially when I failed Him miserably in the same area over and over and over again, sinning repeatedly, I could not understand how after all of that repetitive sin in the very same area as a Christian, I could come to God for the 10,000th time and God would give me grace. That didn't make sense. I automatically turned into a legalist. And I sought to earn my way back to God through my good efforts and duty. And this misunderstanding of the grace of God, it left my soul miserable and depressed. It seemed as if God were impossible to please because His Word says in Matthew 5.48, you must be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect in this This expectation of perfection had caused my life to spiral into depression. Here's a personal journal entry from the spring of 1996. As I wonder why there are so many inconsistencies in the Christian life and why my life resembles a roller coaster of spiritual highs and lows all my Christian life, I have been trying to put together a step-by-step formula to stay on track for God. In other words, I've asked myself repeatedly, what is the spiritual key that will unlock a spiritual life that remains intimate with Christ forever? What can I do? All my Christian life, I have been trying to discover this remedy for my spiritual rebellions and lows. What is it? What can I do to stay intimate with the Lord? Even the basic spiritual disciplines of the Word and prayer have not afforded me with much spiritual refreshment. How can this be? How can I read the Word of God and pray to Him without my heart being affected at all? What's wrong with my approach? Although I desired and longed to be a godly and passionate lover of Christ, something was missing. 
C.J. Mahaney in his book, The Cross-Centered Life, gives the symptoms of a Christian who is not gospel-centered. He said this, you often lack joy. You're not consistently growing in spiritual maturity. Your love for God lacks passion. You're always looking for some new technique, some new truth, or new experience to pull all the pieces of your faith together. And when I read that recently, I readily identified that to be the summary of the first 22 years of my Christian life. But then God, in His kindness and His mercy, began to illuminate the truth of His gospel And I'm sure it began before 2006, but that's the date that I most vividly remember because of a sermon preached at the 2006 Together for the Gospel Conference by R.C. Sproul. His message was amazing. It was actually really not an expositional message. It was more of a historical message because he spent the majority of it detailing the rigorous works righteousness of Roman Catholicism during the Middle Ages. How the the Catholic Church did such outrageous things to earn God's favor. And then at the end, he said these words, The Gospel is good news. I despair of my righteousness. I acknowledge my sin. I put my trust in Christ and in Christ alone. And the good news is that the very instance I do that, all that He is and the all that He has is mine. And for the rest of my days, He's got me covered. The Father looks at me and beyond the impurities, He sees the cloak of the righteousness of Jesus. And now I am justified, not for today, not for this week, not until I commit another sin, but for eternity. Is there better news, any better news than that in the whole world? And that message rocked my understanding of the gospel. It set my heart on this quest to know more of this gospel that liberates and frees us from this bondage to self and to sin. And so for the past three years, my heart has been seeking and searching to know the truth of the Gospel. Not only that which saves sinners, but also which sanctifies believers. And by the grace of God, for the glory that He alone deserves, I can stand before you to testify that the Gospel indeed is the means is the sole means, is the only means by which a Christian relates to God. Now, I don't want you to be convinced based on my personal experience or by quotes of well-known authors. I want you to be convinced by Scripture. In the last three years, that has been my desire. I don't want this just to be another technique. I don't want this just to be another approach to God. I don't want to find myself in the same miserable plight of soul as I was for the first 22 years. I want to make sure that this gospel truth that has been revealed to us is firmly grounded and rooted in God's Word. And that's what I want to share with you this morning. The question I have is this, why is the centrality of the gospel so essential to the Christian life? All this gospel talk, 
all the gospel-centered messages that James and the others have been preaching from this pulpit. Why? Why are we preaching this message of the gospel? And I think there is biblical evidence and biblical grounding for this truth. If you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Here in 2 Corinthians, Paul is defending his apostleship before the Corinthian church. And the reason he's doing this is not because he's got hurt feelings or because he feels like he needs to defend himself. Paul would never do that. The reason why he defends himself in this situation is because if he doesn't defend himself, the Corinthians lose the gospel which was associated with Paul. And so Paul defends the gospel and the effects of the gospel to the Corinthians in the first seven chapters. False teachers have snuck into the church and they're accusing Paul of being a sham preacher and they're attacking his gospel. They're attacking his credibility. And in 2 Corinthians 3, 1-15, Paul defends his gospel ministry to them and he points to the work of the new covenant. He basically says in this chapter, Corinthians, all you have to do is look at your own hearts and see the radical transformation that the gospel has had upon you. And then you'll know that what I've preached to you was not false, but it's the true gospel because it fulfills all the covenantal promises, all the spiritual blessings of the new covenant. And then in verse 18, he says this verse. But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Look at that verse. There's two agents of transformation that Paul mentions in 3.18. What are they? The first is, he says, there's this mirror that he calls the glory of the Lord. And then at the end of the verse, he refers to the Spirit. We're being transformed from the Lord, the Spirit. We know the second. That's simple. The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit indwells a believer the moment he is regenerated. That Holy Spirit then continues to be the agent of sanctification. 1 Peter 1, 2 says, According to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit, we know, indwells us and is that agent of change. But what is the first speaking of? What is this mirror that Paul is talking about? The mirror, the glory of the Lord mirror. What kind of mirror is this? Where do we find a mirror? that reveals to us the glory of the Lord. If you scroll down to chapter 4, starting in verse 3, let's pick it up there. Paul writes, And even if our gospel is veiled, hidden, it is hidden to those who are perishing. Unbelievers are perishing. In whose case the God of this world, that's Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. 
For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts, and here it is again, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, and here it is, in the face of Christ. 3.18 says the way we get changed is we gaze into this mirror that is the glory of the Lord. 4.4.4.6 says this glory is now further explained. It is the light of the knowledge of the glory of God where? In the face of Jesus Christ. It's paralleled in verse 4. The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. It's essentially saying the same thing. Verse 4, verse 6. That phrase, you can parallel those phrases. And here's what I believe Paul is saying here. The glory of God. What is the glory of God? The glory of God is the visible manifestation of God's divine essence. In other words, it's what we can see of God. When God reveals His glory to us, that's His visible manifestation of all that He is. That's His glory. And He says here that this glory is seen where? In the face of Christ. Hebrews 1.3 And He is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of God's nature. But we can't see the face of Christ. We don't have pictures of Jesus that we can pull out of our Bible and gaze at the face of Jesus. Is that what Paul is saying? That we are to look at a physical face, a literal face? I don't think so. Because he says that what shines light on the glory of Christ, look with me in verse 4, is the light of the gospel. If you want to know what Jesus Christ is like, if you want to gaze in the face of Jesus Christ, look no further than the gospel. The glory of Christ, men and women, is revealed most clearly and most deeply through the Gospel. And this is so essential. Because, men and women, it's this revelation, the Gospel truth of what Jesus Christ did that reveals the gloriousness of the Gospel. The gospel simply means good news. And what makes the gospel good news is this revelation right here. That Jesus Christ's glory revealed in gospel events is what shines the most glory upon Christ. That's what makes Him most glorious. It's not getting rid of sin's guilt. It's not having your kids with you in heaven. It's not thinking of hell and being horrified of hell, which you should be, and feeling the weight and the burden of hell off of your shoulders and saying, whew, I'm so glad I'm going to heaven. That's not the glorious truth of the gospel. 
But the good news of the gospel is the glorious person and the glorious work of Jesus Christ in gospel events. So we go back to 3.18, which gave us two essential change agents that transformed Christians into the likeness of Christ, the Holy Spirit, and the glory of the Lord, namely the truth of the gospel. Men and women, there it is right there. This is how Christians grow. You grow by the Holy Spirit, and you grow by faith in gospel truth. Gazing in the face of Jesus Christ, how? By trusting in all that Jesus is and all that Jesus did for us at Calvary. Jerry Bridges writes in his book, The Bookends of the Christian Life, when we become united to Christ by faith, God places a set of bookends on the bookshelf of our lives. One bookend is the righteousness of Christ, the gospel. The other is the power of the Holy Spirit. And men and women, that's what was missing. For 22 years, I understood the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, but I did not understand the doctrine of the Gospel. And therefore, I related to God on the basis of my merit. I leaned on my self-effort. Times of failure, I said to God, I will show you how much I love you. I will fast, I will pray, I will read my Bible, I will evangelize, I'll serve faithfully, I'll study harder. Here's what I will do. Rather than relating to God on the basis of gospel truth. So let me launch from this text and ask and answer three related questions. Because not everything's answered for us in what I've just shared with you about the exposition of 2 Corinthians 4, 4 through 6. The first question I want to ask is this What is the gospel? When I mention gospel events, when it says good news, what are we talking about when we say the gospel? So, the gospel first is the gospel truth. When Paul uses the word gospel in verse 4, he assumes that his readers would understand what he's talking about. There's no need to explain it because Paul's talking to people that clearly understood what he meant. What are they? 1 Corinthians 15. He says to them, verse 1, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And then, here it is, verse 3, For I deliver to you as of first importance that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures. The core content of the Gospel is this, it's the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When we hear gospel truth, gospel events, that's how the Bible identifies what the gospel is. It's relating back to the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, the next question we have to ask is, why is that so important? Why does God make such a big deal about His death? about His resurrection. Why do these two events, gospel events, Friday He was crucified, 
Sunday morning He rose from the dead. Why are these two events the pinnacle, the highest point that reveals the glory of Jesus Christ? Because that's what Paul's saying. You want to know the glory of Christ? Look no further to the Gospel. Why do these Gospel events reveal the glory of Christ? And I believe it's this. It is because no other event in human history reveals the grace of God more than the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The reason why the Gospel shines the most light upon Jesus Christ is because His death and His resurrection show really the reality of His grace. Ephesians 1.7 says, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of what? His grace. We have redemption, the forgiveness of our trespasses through the death and resurrection of Christ according to the riches of His grace. Which is why Paul identified the Gospel in Acts 20.24 and spoke of it as the Gospel of the grace of God. The death and resurrection of Christ are the clearest and deepest reality of the grace of God. And men and women, the grace of God will be and should be, even now, the highest focal point of worship for saved sinners forever. When we get to heaven, you know what's going to be the crowning jewel of the attributes of God that we will worship? It's His grace. Yes, we will worship all of God. But the picture that Scripture gives us of heavenly worship, of everlasting worship, focuses on God and then super focuses on one point of God's omnipotent, infinite, eternal attributes. And what is it? It's His grace. Revelation 5.12. Here's what the angels sing. Saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb. What? That was slain. Our everlasting praise is going to be gathered around the glorified Christ who will still have the scars in His wrists and in His feet. And He will be forever worshipped as the Lamb who was slain. When we stand before the holy, infinite, awesome, majestic, righteous God in heaven, here's what's going to happen. We will see the full spectrum of His perfections from His love to His wrath. And we will see God's just punishment being poured out upon the damned in hell forever. Just think about that for a minute. What would it be like if God were to pour out His wrath upon us for a split nanosecond? We would all be crushed in horror, wouldn't we? And yet God is going to be pouring out His wrath forever and ever and ever upon the damned in hell. And because we will see the full manifestation of His perfections, we're not just going to see the nice things, but we're also going to see the hard things 
of his wrath be poured out. And when we see that wrath, you know what's going to happen? Every single one of us will be utterly amazed that we're there. How could this be? How could billions upon billions upon billions of people endure the wrath of God justly? And what in the world am I doing standing before this holy God who has every right to pour out His wrath upon me? We will be amazed. We will be amazed, and what will further amaze us, and what will further awe us, is not that. And here we go to the highest point. It will be the truth that God killed His own Son so that we could be there. It wasn't as if God just waved a magic wand and said, You, 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 you get saved. The rest of you, you're damned. No, God sent His Son. And forever we will see the perfect sacrifice of the Lamb who was slain. And that will cause us to burn in adoration and worship of Christ forever. The grace of God in the person and work of the Lamb that was slain will be our everlasting song. And as Paul wrote in Ephesians 2.7, the reason why God saved you is so that in the ages to come, He might show the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Men and women, that's why these two gospel events, the death and resurrection of Christ, stand as the pinnacle of the glory of Christ because no other event in human history past and no other event in human history future will reveal the glory of God's grace more than the killing of His own Son for unworthy sinners. So what is the gospel? The core content of the gospel is the death and resurrection of Christ. And this reveals for us the clearest and deepest reality of the grace of God, which is what God wants us to focus on, not only in this life, but forever. So let's look at the second question. Why is it so essential? Practically, why is this gospel so essential? And I believe there's two reasons why the gospel is so essential. The first is, it's powerful. The gospel is the power of God. It's the power of God unto salvation, Paul says in Romans 1.16. If you go back to our opening text and see what gospel power actually does in the heart, he says there in verse 4 of 2 Corinthians 4, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Unbelievers can't see the glory of Christ. They cannot see what benefits His person and His work have upon their souls. They hear about Jesus today and they don't trust Jesus. 
Unbelievers look at Jesus and they get bored about Jesus. They think of Christianity and church and they think, man, I don't want to start losing 10% of my income. Forget that. They think of Jesus and they don't see Jesus in this glorious light. He's not appealing to them. Compared to their sinful, fleshly, earthly, temporal pursuits, Jesus is like nothing. But note what gospel power does. In verse 6, it says, Light shall shine out of darkness. Just like Genesis 1. Let there be light. Just like John 11. Lazarus come forth. God just speaks and the heart gets regenerated. And he says, The one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. The power of the gospel. Here's where gospel power is is radically effective. This is where I think it's so essential. The power of the gospel opens blind eyes to see Christ as glorious. That's where gospel power affects us. It's in the heart. So that Jesus Christ, when we see how wicked our sin is, when we see just how awful Our sins are. We hate sin. We understand it as the poison it is. And then we see the grace of God. It fills us with this unspeakable joy. And there we worship Christ. Men and women, that is the power of the gospel. It is an internal change first. Not this outward change of behavior. It is is a radical transformation of the eyes of your heart. Listen to the words of Jonathan Edwards on verse 6. He says, It is a true sense of the excellency of God and Jesus Christ and of the work of redemption and the ways and works of God revealed in the gospel. He that is spiritually enlightened truly apprehends and sees it or has a sense of it. He does not merely rationally believe that God is glorious, but he has a sense of the gloriousness of God in his heart. I cannot stress enough the absolute importance of this verse upon contemporary Christianity. So many people, so many parents, so many pastors believe that accepting gospel facts, praying a prayer, attending a church, and professing with your mouth that you are a Christian represents genuine conversion. So many people just take that for granted. They just say, oh, you believe in the gospel? Great. When did you become a Christian? And this is what happened. And on and on and on. And we make these outward professions and these outward signs the measure of the inward reality. Men and women, genuine conversion occurs when the eyes of our heart see the glory of Christ, and let me say this, primarily in His death and in His resurrection. Some people, you know, they say, well, I found Jesus and Jesus loves me. And they get real emotional over the love of Christ because maybe they've never been loved like that by anyone. They've never had a a loving father, a loving mother, and so they hear, you know, Jesus is a God of love, and they just accept that love, but it has absolutely no connection with his cross work. The power of the gospel is effective 
Because when we see Christ in his death and resurrection, hearts get changed. And this is why Paul constantly called the believers he served to remain in the grace of the gospel. This is why the gospel is the means of sanctification. Romans 5, verse 2, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exult in hope of the glory of God. 2 Timothy 2, 1 in the ESV, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The power of the gospel not only saves, but it also sanctifies and it does so by that same vision Heart vision that your heart saw the moment you got saved and Christ became glorious, that is repeatable, men and women, throughout our Christian lives. So the first reason why the gospel is essential, because it has power. Second, because of its purpose. The gospel keeps the glory of God central, which is His ultimate aim in salvation. This is where I think I got sidetracked in my first 22 years. When the gospel is not central, you know what happens? Eventually, something becomes central in our lives. Something becomes the basis of relating to God. And in my case, it was not Christ and the gospel. It was me. It was my self-righteousness. It was thinking that I had arrived spiritually. We start to become very critical We become very condescending, very judgmental of others. We become legalists in our approach to God. We try to earn God's favor and His grace. We talk more about ourselves, our our leaders, our churches, our numbers, our budgets, our programs than the grace of God that has spawned all fruitfulness in the Christian life. And essentially, you know what happens? When we move away from the gospel, we become proud. We become proud, which is why... The first time I heard this, my initial reaction was, no, I will do it. The gospel, that's not the means. It's duty. It's me. It's my faithfulness to Christ. And there was this kicking and screaming as God took his gospel rope, tied me up and started dragging me by his grace to the cross again. Because our pride wants to fight trust and dependence and faith. We like to be in control. We like to be self-reliant. We like to look back at our Christian lives and say, hey, look at that. Look what I did. Look how mature I am. Look how much knowledge, biblical knowledge, I have. But if you're gospel-centered, you know what happens? The cross of Christ kills all pride. Galatians 6.14, may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. How can a sinner save by grace? When we stand before the holy God of this universe on that day when we all appear before His righteous throne, how could any sinner, save sinner, make any claim on any God-honoring fruit in his life? How can we boast about our spiritual maturity? How can we boast about our biblical knowledge? How can a sinner saved by sheer grace make any boast about any God-honoring thing in his life? 
When we get to heaven, none of us are going to be enamored with ourselves. None of us are going to be looking at our crowns and saying, man, look how big that crown is. Oh, I'm sorry, your crown is really small. That's a Burger King crown, but look at this. Look at all the jewels. Oh, yeah, this, back here, this is when I did this, and this is when I led the, this guy to Christ, and this is this, and this is that. None of us are going to be doing that. The Bible says we're going to cast our crowns where? The feet of Christ. Why? Because that symbolizes you're the one who did it all by your grace. So gospel-centeredness, men and women, protects us from pride. It protects us not only individually, but corporately. It protects our churches. It protects our leaders from becoming proud. So that's the second question. Third question, let me wrap it up. What does the gospel do? What does the gospel do? When we talk about this transformation of the heart, what are we really talking about? What happens? The gospel produces many effects, but I believe there is one fundamental and essential effect the gospel has in our lives. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, 4 and 6, the gospel reveals the glory of Christ, right? Your heart sees it for the first time. You're overwhelmed. You say, this is what I want. This is what I've been missing. I follow Christ. I don't care about my life anymore. The weight of His glory on the cross melts our hearts. And you know what the effect of that is? Real practically speaking, the effect of the gospel is a profound love for Christ. Love for Jesus Christ is the fundamental effect of the gospel in our lives. Which is why love for Christ, birth from gospel truth, ought to be, I believe, the highest measure of of conversion. It shouldn't be church attendance. It should not be evangelistic witness. It shouldn't be our reading of the Word and our prayer life and our devotional life. But I believe love for Christ, birth from gospel truth, ought to be the highest measure of conversion. I think that's where the Bible puts it. John 1.12, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Note what happens when you're a child of God. Jesus said this to the Pharisees in John 8.42, Jesus said to them, If God were your father, in other words, if you were really born again, if you were a child of God, he says, you would love me. Because you don't love me, you're not saved. But those who are true children, guess what happens? They love Christ. And in one of the most clearest statements on this, 1 Corinthians 16.22, if anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. He is to be damned to hell. Love for Christ, birth from gospel truth, is the highest measure of conversion. And it's illustrated for us in Luke 7 with this adulteress who heard that Jesus was dining at the home of a Pharisee named Simon. You've heard this story. This former adulteress went to a Pharisee's home. She knew that this would bring despicable shame, not upon her reputation, but also it would defile a Pharisee's home. And she walks in, and she risks all public shame and humiliation to enter that house where Jesus sat. And what did she do when she got there? Luke 7, 38, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, 
she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with a perfume. Why did she demonstrate this kind of radical, risk-taking, loyal love to Jesus? What, what prompted someone to endure all of that, to walk? I mean, think about this. She's a known adulteress in the city. Everyone knows when she walks down the street, it's almost like the Red Sea. Everyone just parts. They don't want to be touched by her. Everywhere she goes, she's ostracized. No matter what has happened in her life, no matter what changes have taken place in her life, people still view her the same way. And she has this courage prompted by this love for Jesus. She goes to this home, not of just some Gentile, not of some Roman, not of some common Jewish peasant, but a Pharisee of all people. And she has the boldness to stand before Jesus. And you can imagine how quiet that room would have been as the jaws of the Pharisees were dropped on the floor as she just stands and hovers behind Christ and then she just starts weeping. And she lets down her hair for which a Jewish woman, it was her glory. It was utterly humiliating for a woman to let down her hair in public and she loosens her hair and she bows down to the lowest part, the feet. And she cleans Jesus' feet. And she pours out this perfume and she's kissing His feet. Why? Why do you do stuff like that? Jesus gives us the answer in 47. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. Here was this woman, who in the simple simplicity of her faith, through gospel grace, realize the depths of her sinfulness before a holy God. And because she understood not only the conviction of sin, but being convinced of God's love, this filled her heart with much love for Christ. If our hearts are first filled with love for Christ, you know what's going to govern and direct your life Your motivations, you don't have to worry about your motivations. You don't have to worry about your directions because Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, what? Then you will obey me. And therefore, the gospel, the effect of the gospel is it transforms our hearts and it produces love for Christ, which then becomes the impetus and the motive behind all obedience. That should be the clarifying distinction of Christians. That should, that should be the aroma of our lives, men and women, is love for Christ, which then spawns into great works and, and faithfulness and obedience for Christ. But we can do a lot of outwardly good things. We can be very dutiful. We can be very faithful without any love for Jesus, right? We can sing. We can read our Bibles. We can evangelize. We can do ministry. And if we do all of that without a gospel-centeredness, pretty soon, slowly but surely, the focus shifts off of Christ and His glory and onto me and my works. 
So that is a profound effect of the gospel. As I mentioned at the start, in closing, I, I didn't always believe this. I knew it, but I didn't really get it. But since this gospel reformation, the gospel has literally changed everything. By God's grace, as my wife and I have talked about this, we've grown more in the past two, three years than we have our entire married lives. These past two years, the first 22 years, do not even compare to the past two or three years. Not even close. The gospel has affected our personal relationship with Christ. I can testify of His grace right now and say, I do not doubt His grace any longer. And you know what? Even on the worst days of my Christian life, I don't doubt His grace. I can go freely and enter into the throne room of the Father. The gospel has affected our parenting, which I'll share about the next hour. The gospel has affected leadership in the church. It's affected the way we do evangelism. It's affected the very culture of our lives. There might be some of you here this morning who are literally enslaved to the opinions of people. You're so afraid that if people really found out what you're really like, they would reject you. And you know what? I was in that same boat. I was enslaved to the opinions of men. And the gospel over the years has broken those chains off my heart and released me from fearing men. I don't have to hide behind this mask of pastoral spirituality and maturity. In fact, I find it refreshing to confess sin. And I credit all of this to the gospel discovery motivated by the grace of God alone. You are blessed here at Cornerstone because your pastors and leaders have also been blessed with gospel grace. And as I said before, this process is not easy because ultimately it does mean you must give up all self-reliance, all self-righteousness, all vestiges of pride. But if you do trust Christ in His gospel, which I hope you've seen biblically, God will continue to radically transform hearts as well. I just want to quote real briefly from the journal entry dated January 11th of this last year. It says this, This past week, God sovereignly affirmed in my heart specific truths about Himself that have been seen but not savored. These truths have been right before my eyes in the Gospel, but they have not been believed because I have not seen the need for them in my sanctification, only my justification. What this has done in the past to my Christian life is it stunted all spiritual growth simply because I was trying to grow on my own strength rather than relying on the Lord. This was a cycle of frustration and discouragement, all this self-effort amounting to nothing. But now, through gospel glasses, I'm able to see what I've been missing for so long. Through the grace of the gospel, God has given me a new perspective on everything in the Christian life. My relationship with God, dealing with sin, relationships with people, ministry. I used to read the great heroes of the faith and their testimonies alluded to this truth, but it was unseen by my own heart. I didn't understand what they were saying when they spoke of union with Christ, relying solely on Christ, living a gospel-centered life. These were shadows, but they held no substance for me. But by the grace of God, He has revealed to me the wonders of this truth. I feel as if I've been born again. But this time, 
to a life that will truly grow by grace. No longer do I sense the need in my soul to perform in order to gain God's favor. No longer is there this burden of self-effort in order to win God's grace. All of it has been won already through the Savior at Calvary. So I am deeply humbled that He would reveal this precious truth to my life at this juncture. And as long as I live, I long to live the rest of my days around these incredible, life-transforming truths. And that would be my prayer for all of you. This is my prayer for my heart. This is my prayer for my wife, for my children, for my church family. We have discovered something that is so glorious. I want to spend the rest of my days exhausting the grace of the glorious gospel. And you know what? There will be no end to that because as heaven says, in the ages to come, we will spend eternity having God reveal more and more and more of His grace. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You so much, Lord, for the precious truth. God, not opinions, not stories, not experiences, but objective, propositional truth revealed in words. We thank You that Your Word says You don't lie. And equally so, Lord, that all Your promises are a yes to us in Christ. We thank You, Father, that this Gospel truth revealing the infinite glory of Your Son in His death and resurrection, that it has been revealed to us not only at the moment of our salvation, but, Father, as You have revealed it to us in this process of sanctification. May we be strengthened by the grace of the Gospel. And may our lives always stand in the bedrock foundation that the gospel provides for us in our relationship with you. Forgive us for our doubting. Forgive me of my mistrust. Forgive me, Father, for doubting your truth and your precious promises. For running back at times to my fleshly lusts and my self-righteousness. Thank you for the perfect righteousness of Christ that He alone is glorious and worthy of all praise and all honor. And we look forward to that day when we will see Him face to face. And we will stand and worship at His feet forever and ever, giving praise for Your incredible, amazing grace. Thank You for that, Lord. And thank You for the work of Your Holy Spirit. In Your name, Amen.